0: Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Carrie Curtis, chair of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum, and your chair for today. We also welcome our listeners on the radio, and we invite our audience to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. Today's event was underwritten by the city of Redwood City, 25 miles south of San Francisco. For five years, Redwood City has been working to implement the kinds of good placemaking that today's speaker has espoused. And now it is my honor to introduce our speaker, uh, James Howard Kunstler. Uh, Jim Kunstler was born in Manhattan, born and raised in Manhattan, but we won't hold that against him. Uh, he's been, he started out life as a, as a writer doing mostly fiction. He's written um, quite a few novels, uh, nine novels, I think, and four nonfiction books. But starting in the early 90s, he became uh, 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 very imp- impressed with the Decline of what he saw out of his window, uh, the decline of the urban landscape, and he began writing a series of articles for the New York Times Magazine. That culminated in um, in a in the first of his books uh, about uh, his first of his books about uh, the urban environment, which was called um, The Geography of Nowhere. And he's written other books, a City and Mine, and his, uh, including A City and Mind, And his most recent book is The Long Emergency. That book is for sale outside here. If you want to uh, buy a copy, Mr. Kunstler has indicated he'd be willing to stay and sign sign books. Uh, So, uh, without further ado, I introduce uh, uh, Jim Kunstler.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here in a city that I lived in. Uh, what now seems a geologic age ago, back in the mid-1970s, I worked at Rolling Stone Magazine, which was then located on 3rd and Brannan, sort of near the ballpark, only we didn't have a ballpark back then. We had the Doggy Diner and a giant fiberglass dog that loomed out of the fog uh, in the evening. It was, a kind of a, it was both a thrilling and a kind of an ominous thing to see as you left the office. But um, it is a pleasure to be back in this beautiful city. Uh, Two years ago in my book, uh, The Long Emergency, I wrote that our nation was sleepwalking into an era of unprecedented hardship and disorder, largely due to the end of uh, reliably cheap and abundant oil. We're still blindly following that path into a dangerous future, Lost in raptures of infotainment, diverted by inane preoccupations with sex and celebrity, and made frantic by incessant motoring. The coming age of energy scarcity will change everything about how we live in this country. It will ignite more desperate contests between nations for the remaining oil and natural gas around the world. It will alter the fundamental terms of industrial economies. It will ramify and amplify many of the problems presented by climate change. It will require us to behave differently, and we are not paying attention. As the American public continues sleepwalking into a future of energy scarcity, climate change, and geopolitical turmoil... We've also, con- uh, we've also continued dreaming. Our collective dream is one of those super vivid uh, dreams that people have just before awakening as the fantastic transports of the unconscious begin to merge with the demands of waking reality. The dream is a particularly American dream on a, an American theme, uh, how to keep all the cars running by some other means than gasoline. And the dream goes, you know, we'll run them on ethanol, we'll run them on biodiesel, we'll run them on synthesized coal liquids, we'll run them on hydrogen, methane gas, electricity, used French fried potato oil, and so on. The dream goes around and round in fevered circles uh, as each gasoline replacement is examined and found to be in one way or another inadequate. But the wish to keep the cars going is so powerful that round and round the dream keeps going. Ethanol, biodiesel, coal, coal liquids, et cetera. And a harsh reality indeed awaits us as the full scope of the permanent energy crisis unfolds. The global oil production peak is not a cult theory, it is a fact. The earth does not have a creamy nougat center of petroleum, the supply is finite, and we have ample evidence that all-time global production may have already peaked. Of course, the issue is not about running out of oil. This is often uh, uniformly misunderstood. It's not about running out of oil, uh, because there will always be some oil left underground. It just might not be worth using a barrel of oil's worth of energy to extract the barrel of oil that you want to get out. The issue is not about running out of oil. It's about what happens when you head over the all-time production peak and head down the slippery slope of depletion. And what happens uh, is that the complex systems that we depend on for everyday life in advanced societies – will begin to falter and to wobble and, in some cases, to fail. And the failures in each system will, in turn, uh, weaken the other systems. And by complex systems, I mean the way we produce our food, the way we conduct, manufacture, and trade, the way we operate banking and finance, the way we move people and things from one place to another and the way we inhabit the landscape. Uh, I'm going to try not to dwell excessively on the statistics of the oil situation, uh, since I'm more concerned here with the implications for, for the everyday life of our nation of these things. But it's probably helpful to understand a few of the numbers. And some of these things, some of these numbers are, are uh, uh, numbers that the public is completely um, uh, not paying attention to at all. Oil production, uh, and this is a baseline uh, understanding of this, oil production in the U.S., of course, peaked in 1970. That's what the OPEC embargo was all about three years later when we discovered that uh, in the rearview mirror we had peaked. And we're now producing about half of the oil uh, uh, of what we did then, and our own production continues to run down steadily at the rate of a few percentage points of recoverable reserves each year. And it adds up. In 1970, we were producing about 10 million barrels a day, and now we're producing less than five. And we consume over 20 million barrels a day. We compensated for that um, by importing oil from other nations. Today, the world is consuming all the oil that it can produce. And as global production passes its own all-time peak the world will not be able to compensate by uh, importing oil from other planets. Nor is there any real likelihood that new discoveries will be adequate to compensate for the losses um, as depletion um, increases. Discovery precedes production, of course, because you uh, you can't recover oil that you haven't discovered. Discovery of oil in the U.S. peaked in the 1930s. Uh, That was the heyday of finding oil in the U.S., and production started declining roughly 35 to 40 years later um, uh, in in the early 1970s. Discovery of oil peaked worldwide in the 1960s, and now the signs suggest that the world itself has peaked in terms of production. Uh, Discovery of new oil worldwide in recent years has amounted to a tiny fraction of replacement levels. In fact, we may be burning more oil just in our exploration efforts than we're getting from the new discoveries in the oil we find. Isn't that amazing? The oil industry has been dominated by, by what are called supergiant oil fields, sometimes called elephant fields. And the four of the reigning supergiant fields uh, uh, were discovered decades ago and are now in decline. The Bergan field of of Kuwait was declared by the government of Kuwait to be in decline, past peak last year. The Daking field of China is past peak. The Cantarell field of Mexico, the second biggest one ever found, is past peak. And finally, the Gawar field of Saudi Arabia, the granddaddy of all the great supergiant fields. Together, in recent decades, these giants were responsible for about 14% of the world's oil production, and they are now in decline. All except Gawar of Saudi Arabia have been declared officially past peak by their own governments, and Gawar is showing signs, clear signs of trouble, although Aramco itself doesn't say so. Gawar has provided 60% of Saudi Arabia's production, Saudi Arabia's total production has been down 8% in the past year despite a massive increase in drilling rigs and the incentive of relatively high prices. Uh, there's some question that they are, that they are able that they are manipulating their output by for example resting old fields that have been overproduced, but we really don't know what the story is with that. The uh, all we can tell for now is that their their production is down 8% a year. Now, perhaps more, more, uh, more to the point uh, of how things will affect us directly very soon. Last year, the Mexican national oil company, Pemex, declared that its supergiant field was officially past peak and in decline. And as in the case with Gowar in Saudi Arabia, Cantorell has been responsible for 60% of Mexico's oil production. Cantorell is now crashing, at an official decline rate of at least 15% a year, and perhaps perhaps more. Mexico has been our number three source of oil imports after Canada and Saudi Arabia, and the crash of the Cantorell field means in just a few years, our number three source of imports will have no surplus oil to sell to the U.S. It also means that the Mexican government will be strapped for operating revenue. And you can draw your own implications, uh, your own conclusions about the political implications of that. The North Sea and Alaska's North Slope were some of the last great discoveries of the oil era. Plentiful North Sea and Alaskan production took away OPEC's leverage over the oil markets. Uh, and uh, this led to the oil glut of the 1990s eventually, driving oil prices down finally to about $10 a barrel uh, at the turn of the millennium. It's also what induced the American public to fall back asleep on energy issues because it seemed as if cheap oil uh, was here to stay forever and that the whole, all the disruptions of the 1970s were just a shuck and jive. Both the North Sea and Alaska are now also past peak and in depletion. Prudhoe Bay, by the way, proved to be Alaska's only giant, uh, supergiant oil field. Several other key fields were discovered, but none of them were one-sixth the size of Prudhoe Bay. North Sea oil, uh, which was jointly owned by the UK and Norway, was produced using the latest and greatest new technology for drilling. And guess what? It only allowed that region to be drained more efficiently and more rapidly. So now 57 of Norway's 69 oil fields are past peak, and the average post-peak decline rates average uh, 17% a year, which is very, very steep. You know, it basically means five, six years they're out, Uh, not to mention their ability to export. Uh, The U.K.'s share of the North Sea has declined to the extent that England is now a net energy importer after 20-odd years of enjoying this fabulous North Sea bonanza that allowed them to suburbanize uh, a lot of England. Russia, despite current high levels of post-Soviet-era production, peaked in the 1980s and may now be as much as 70% uh, uh, into its ultimate recoverable reserves. Iran is past peak. Indonesia, an OPEC member, is so far past peak that it became a net oil importer last year, uh, as did England. Um, Venezuela is past peak. Iraq and Nigeria are consumed by political insurrection. The companies developing Canada's tar sands have announced this past year that their costs will double their production costs will be double original estimates. In other words, whatever comes out of the ground there uh, is going to be very expensive. Meanwhile, in the background, uh, ignored by the U.S. media, an additional problem is developing on the oil scene. Net world production is going down by just under 3% a year. Uh, and this is just in the la- last year over year. It's not a very long rearview mirror, but that's what we're seeing. But the the more ominous thing is that total exports from the top 10 exporters are going down at a steeper rate than that. Geologist Jeffrey Brown, among the excellent technicians at the website theoildrum.com, writes that the top 10 exporters are showing a net export decline of 7% the past year, trending toward a 50% export decline over the coming 10 years. That means half of the oil that we're used to sending out to the importing nations will not get there. And why is this? Why? Because on top of production decline rates, uh, nations like Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Venezuela are using more of their own oil at home as their populations rise, they u- use more cars, more appliances, etc. They desalinate more water. This is all very costly in energy. Uh, And a few more background items. Most of the easy-to-get light and sweet crude oil is gone. We got that out of the ground in the run-up to the peak. We found that kind of high-quality oil in the temperate places on shore, in places like Texas where it was easy to work and the stuff was relatively close to the surface. And the remaining oil is each year proportionately made more of heavy and sour crudes that are hard to refine and yield less gasoline. Most of the refinery capacity in the world cannot process these heavy and sour crudes, and there is no world-class industrial effort being made to build new refineries that could process them. And most of the oil refinery infrastructure in the world is very, very old and rusty. In In the U.S., most of it is 50 to 70 years old. Finally, most of the remaining oil in the world exists either in geographically forbidding places where it's extremely difficult and expensive to work, like deep water out in the ocean or in frozen regions, or else it belongs to people who are indisposed to being friendly toward us. The natural gas situation is equally ominous, with some differences in the technical details. And by the way, I'm referring here not to gasoline but to methane gas CH4, the stuff that we light our kitchen stoves with and run our home furnaces. And half the furnaces in America are run with natural gas. Natural gas doesn't deplete slowly like oil does following a predictable bell curve pattern. It simply stops coming out of the ground very suddenly, and then that particular gas well is played out. So you get the gas from the continent you're on. And to get it elsewhere by other means is very expensive and difficult. So that's the background on uh, our energy predicament. Uh, Against this background is the whole question of how we live in the United States. I wrote three books previously about the fiasco of suburbia. There are many ways of uh, understanding and describing this. I now call it the greatest misallocation of resources in the history of the world. Why? Because it's a living arrangement with no future. Uh, It was designed to run on cheap oil and gas, and in a few years, we're not going to have those things. Having made those choices, we are now hobbled by a tragic psychology of previous investment, which is to say we have poured so much of our late 20th century wealth into this living arrangement, this happy motoring utopia, that we can't imagine letting go of it or substantially reforming it. And we've compounded the problem lately by making this the building of suburban sprawl the basis of our economy. That's what the housing bubble has been all about. Roughly 40% of the jobs created since 2001 have been in bubble-related fields. The, the builders, the mortgage brokers, the installers of granite te- countertops. And if you subtract that from the rest of the economy, uh, there's not much left besides fried chicken, hairstyling, and open-heart surgery. <laughs> so we can see the, the tragedy of this uh, and the tragedy of the housing bubble itself um, Uh, uh, as it now begins to unwind. So what are we going to do about our extreme oil dependence and the living arrangement that goes with it? There's a widespread wish across America these days that some combination of alternative fuels will rescue us, will allow us to continue enjoying by some other means what has been called the non-negotiable American way of life. This wish is perhaps understandable, given the psychology of previous investment. But the truth is that no combination of alternative fuels or systems for running them will allow us to continue running America the way we're running it now, or even a substantial fraction of it. We're not going to run Walmart. Walt Disney World, Monsanto, and the Interstate Highway System on any combination of solar or wind or hydrogen, nuclear, ethanol, tar sands, oil shale, methane hydrates, thermal depolymerization, um, zero-point energy, or used French-fried potato oil or anything else you can name. We will use many of these things in many ways, and we should use many of these things in many ways, but we are likely to be disappointed by what they can actually do for us. Um, For instance, we're we're much more likely to use wind uh, wind power on a household or neighborhood or district basis than to build these deployments of Godzilla-sized turbines in gigantic wind farms. The key to understanding what we face is that we have, we have to comprehensively make other arrangements for all the normal activities of everyday life. It's a very long and detailed to-do list. The public discussion of these issues is impressively incoherent. The failure of the collective imagination is reflected in the, especially in the poor job being done by the mainstream media covering this story, especially, the, in particular, the New York Times, which uh, does little besides publish feel-good press releases from Cambridge Energy Research Associates, the oil industry's chief public relations office. These days, the only aspect of these issues that we are willing to talk about at all is how we're going to keep running the cars by other means, and we have to get beyond this obsession with how we're going to run the cars. Because the future is not just going to be about motoring. We have to make these comprehensive arrangements for all the other activities of daily life. We have to grow our food differently. We have to do farming differently because the industrial model, the the Archer, Daniel, Midland, Monsanto, and Cargill (coughs) model of of, uh, agribusiness will not survive the discontinuities of the long emergency, this uh, system of pouring oil and gas-based fertilizers on the soil in order to grow the cheese doodles and the hamburgers. As oil and gas deplete, we will be left with sterile soils and farming organized at an unworkable scale, and many laws will depend on our ability to fix this. We're going to find out by the hard way that we can't afford to dedicate our croplands to growing grains and soybeans for motor fuels. And a Pennsylvania farmer put it to me eloquently about three weeks ago when he said, it looks like we're going to take the last six inches of Midwest topsoil and burn it up in our gas tanks. The disruptions of the ethanol mania are already thundering through our system. Last month there were riots in the center of Mexico City because so much Mexican corn is now being diverted to uh, ethanol production in the U.S. and the poor people living on the economic margins can't afford to pay for their for their staple foods of corn and tortillas, et cetera. And so you can see, by the way, how this tragic, uh, uh, this is a tragic extension of our obsession with running all the cars. In the years ahead, farming is going to come back closer to the center of economic life. It will necessarily be done at a more local and smaller scale. Um, And it presents huge problems for us in land reform. Okay, another thing. We're going to have to move people around uh, from place to place differently. It's imperative that we restore the U.S. passenger railroad system. No other project we could do right away would have a uh, more positive impact on our oil consumption. Uh, We used to have a railroad system that was the envy of the world, and now we have a railroad system that the Bulgarians would be ashamed of. (laughs) The infrastructure for rebuilding our railroads for this great task is lying out there, rusting in the rain, waiting to be fixed. The project would put back to work scores of thousands of people in meaningful jobs at every level, from labor to management. It would benefit people in all ranks of society, and fixing the U.S. Uh, passenger rail system doesn't require any technological leaps into the unknown. The technology is thoroughly understood. The fact that from end to end of the political spectrum there's no public discussion about fixing the U.S. passenger ra- rail system shows how unserious we are. It's a, a, a very, very important. to to get to this task. And there's another compelling reason to uh, undertake this great project of repairing the U.S. passenger rail system. It's something that would restore our confidence, uh, a way that we could demonstrate to ourselves that we're competent, that we're capable, that we're realistic, that we can meet the challenges of this energy-scarce future. Uh, And it will inspire us to get get on with the other things that we have to do. And, by the way, it's terribly important that we electrify this system. All the other advanced nations have electric railroad systems, which you can run on other things. You can control the source point uh, uh, carbon emissions and, and and so forth. Terribly important. Uh, we're going to have to move things by boat. Uh, but we've just finished a 50-year effort of taking apart most of the infrastructure for maritime trade in this country because we've gotten the idea that, that harbors and riverfronts are only for uh, parks and, by- and bike trails and condo sites and festival marketplaces and, uh, and rock and roll uh, uh, band shells. Uh We're going to have to put back the piers and the warehouses and even the crummy accommodations for the sailors. And we're going to have to move a lot more stuff by water or our commerce will suffer. And if we use trucks at all, we're probably going to use them in the last, the final increment of the journey, if we use them at all. And our leaders in business and politics have uh, not yet wrapped their minds around that new reality. We are probably in the twilight of happy motoring, as we've known it. The automobile is going to be a diminished presence in our life. They, They may not disappear. But uh, it will become self-evident that our extreme dependency is at an end, and it will then become a political problem, because as more, as a larger and larger class of people cannot afford happy motoring, they're going to be full of resentment and grievance about it, and especially about maintaining and fixing highways that only an elite can enjoy. Um, we're going to... Uh, have to make other arrangements for commerce and manufacturing. The national chain discount stores that took over American retail in recent decades are not going to survive the discontinuities of the long emergency. Their business equations and methods of operation will fail, in particular their remorseless cancer-like drive toward replication and expansion. They will lack the resilience to adapt due to their gigantic scale of operations and narrow profit margins. The the so-called warehouse on wheels composed of thousands of trucks circulating incessantly around the interstate highways won't work in an an economy of ever scarcer and more expensive oil. Not to mention the 12,000-mile supply lines to the factories of Asia, which we have tragically become dependent on for all our household goods. We're going to have to check all our assumptions at the door about the global economy, uh, which is uh, now thanks to uh, Tom Friedman and other cheerleaders, we've adopted the idea that globalism is a permanent condition of life. I think we'll be disappointed to learn the truth that globalism was a set of transient economic relations that were possible at a particular time of special conditions in the world, namely half a century of cheap energy and of relative peace between the great powers. And those conditions are about to end. Uh, and many of our far-flung economic relations that we've come to rely on will go with them. The U.S. and China are contesting for the world's remaining oil resources. Um, China has outstripped its own dwindling supply. Um, China has gone all over the world in recent years systematically making contracts for future delivery uh, of oil with other nations, including Canada, by the way, as it ramps up the tar sand production. And I want to remind you that there's such a thing as the, the Monroe Doctrine, an American foreign policy position that essentially forbids nations outside the Western Hemisphere from intruding in or exploiting affairs in this part of the world. And it may be a very, an old and arrogant policy, but I predict the time will come when the United States will invoke it. In order to preserve our access to Canadian oil supplies, and if and when that occurs, what do you suppose that will mean to our trade relations with China? How many plastic waiting pools and salad shooters will Walmart be ordering then? So we're going to have to um, uh, uh, we're going to have to rebuild uh, our own retail trade and commerce and manufacturing in this country, and it's important to recognize the damage that the national discount chain stores have already done in destroying local commercial economies. If you travel around the nation as I do, to, you see places in Pennsylvania and Alabama and Michigan and Oklahoma and Connecticut and my own home uh, place of the upper Hudson Valley, uh, places that now look like former Soviet backwaters. They've become so uh, 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 so destitute and de-industrialized. The desolation is just out of this world. Um, In destroying local retail infrastructures, the chain stores wiped out a whole merchant middle class. These were the people who sat on local school boards and hospital boards and uh, sponsored Little League baseball, who employed their neighbors and had to behave decently toward them because they had to live with them. And they had to treat their neighbors decently in matters of trade because they had to live with them. And there were people who uniformly took care of at least two buildings in their town, the place they did business and the place they lived in. And these were the people who are the caretakers of our communities, and the extermination of this class of citizens has been devastating. Uh, I think the truth is we're going to have fewer things to buy in the years ahead. The blue light special orgy of retail is going to fade into history, and shopping will retreat into the background of life. Uh, Consuming things will not be our sole reason for living. The role of finance as we know it today will be severely challenged by the long emergency. Declining energy supplies will have one particularly grave implication for industrial societies, that they can no longer take for granted the 3 to 7% annual growth in gross domestic product that has been assumed to be normal throughout recent history. In fact, the energy picture, the dwindling of a particular, extraordinary, one-time, special resource – Oil implies a general contraction of productive activity, and our expectations for growth are vested in tradable paper certificates like currencies, stocks, bonds, and other instruments that represent our confidence that society will produce more wealth, and, this incre- and the idea that this increase can be enjoyed in the form of profits and dividends. And what happens when that consensus uh, about our expectations falls apart and we no longer believe that these certificates will produce 3 to 7% uh, of growth in wealth a year for us? Uh, so we can see the beginning of this process right now in the unwinding of the home mortgage sector. Uh, th- this recent experiment in the abolition of moral hazard, in the suspension of norms and standards in lending, in the fobbing off of risk, is climaxing in one of the great debacles of modern economics. It was based on the idea that immense numbers of promises for future payment could be bundled into loans, uh, into bundled into bonds, resold and parlayed to leverage ever more abstract casino-like bets masquerading as investments. Uh, this is anything but investment in future productive activity. It is now being discovered that at the foundation of all this jive finance lies bundles of broken promises, non-performing loans, as they're called. And it remains to be seen how this mortgage and housing fiasco uh, fiasco will uh, play out. But I think it will be one of the major events uh, leading to an overall loss of presumed wealth for American society. And it is likely to infect uh, uh, global finance as well. The key to all our uh, everyday activities in the future is scale. We're probably going to have to live more locally than has been the case. And I think we can state categorically that things... Organized at the giant scale, whether they're corporations or universities uh, or or chains of stores or schools or governments, are going to run into trouble. School is another thing we're going to have trouble with. The giant centralized school districts that were all super organized in the last 30 years in order to save administrative costs that are served by the gigantic fleets of yellow school buses collecting all the pupils from the 50-mile pupil sheds. Uh, We built the same flat-roofed one-story buildings in Florida and Minnesota, and we're going to discover that they're hard to heat without cheap natural gas. And we're going to have to do something about that. What we're going to do, we have no idea. My guess is that the the remedy for this is going to be a self-organizing process growing out of the homeschooling movement as it aggregates into larger um, units. Um, So... The, uh, the destiny of high- higher education, of course, is another uh, troubling thing. The, gi- the gigantic universities are exactly the kinds of institutions that are going to prove unwieldy and unsupportable in the long emergency. College will cease to be a mass consumer activity, and it may become, a, a, uh, if it survives at all, an activity uh, for a, a much smaller economic elite. And, of course, it will generate resentment and grievance because of this. The question of class res- relations, per se, will be affected by our energy situation since it is necessarily linked to the economy. The long emergency is going to produce a lot of economic losers, a a group I call the formerly middle class. They will lose jobs, they will lose incomes, and they will never get them back. They're going to be full of grievance and anger and resentment and bewilderment at the loss of their entitlements to the non negotiable American way of life, including home ownership and affordable, happy motoring. And they're liable to express these, uh, these, uh, uh, their, uh, unease and unhappiness politically. We'll be lucky if they do not turn to demagogues who promise to mount some sort of campaign or another to restore the entitlements of suburban life. And such a campaign will be an enormous exercise in futility and a gross waste of our remaining resources. Um, we, we, I think, can uh, be secure in understanding that our cities are probably going to contract uh, they're, they're gonna, the, our giant cities of the late 20th, early 21st century are products of a cheap oil economy we are not going to be able to operate them at the scale that they're at now the ones that are composed of suburban fabric uh, uh, are going to be the ones that get in the most trouble and some of them are going to have like Phoenix will have additional problems with water and producing food locally on top of energy problems Um, And the good news is, in Las Vegas, the excitement will be over. For the past two decades, I've been associated with the new urbanist movement, and the new urbanists were architects, planners, and developers who recognize the tremendous liabilities and weaknesses of the suburban development pattern, and they've been campaigning to reform the way we build things in this country for 15 years. Their methods are consistent with what we're going to need in the decades to come, to refashion human habitats that have a future. The great achievements of the new urbanists was not in the new projects and new towns that they built, not the seasides uh, that have been built. Their great achievement was to retrieve lost knowledge from the dumpster of history, a whole body of principle and knowledge and methodology and skill necessary to design places worth living in. And this was the knowledge we threw away, we threw in the garbage in 1950, in order to become a drive-in utopia. Uh, We threw it away thinking that uh, true urban design and artistry could be replaced with statistical analysis and traffic engineering. Big mistake. And what we managed to do was build a land full of scary places that turned us into a nation of scary people. But this was the final tragedy of suburbia. We put up we put up thousands of places that aren't worth caring about, not understanding that when we had enough of them, they, that we might be left with a nation that was not worth defending. So there you have a comprehensive to-do list of the things that we have to do, the challenges that we have to meet in this per- what will be a permanent global oil uh, crisis growing our own food locally, restoring our railroads and other forms of public transit, rebuilding local networks of commerce and economic interdependency, reorganizing education, and building places that are worth living in. We cannot assume a seamless transition between where we are at now and where we're going. In fact, it's more liable to be turbulent and disorderly. We can't assume that technology alone will rescue us. In fact, one of the big delusions in the media, especially today, but generally in the, the American public at, at large, is that technology and energy are the same thing, and that if you run out of one, you just plug in the other. Technology, technology and energy are different. They're not the same thing, and they are not interchangeable. Um, When I go around to colleges, I'm always asked uh, at the end of uh, my talks, can you please give us some hope? Because the college kids find this a uh, uh, discouraging picture of where they're going to spend most of their lives. And I have to tell them that um, hope, I cannot give you hope. Hope is something that we have to supply for ourselves. We are the generators of hope, especially the young people are the generators of hope, and they generate the hope by demonstrating to themselves that they're capable, that they're competent, that they are realistic and brave enough to greet the circumstances that reality is sending our way. And then by demonstrating that they're capable of accomplishing the things necessary to meet those challenges. That's how we develop hope. We, we develop hope by developing confidence in our ability, not by being passive, not by wishing, not by expecting get, to get something for nothing, which has been the pattern of the broad American uh, public imagination for the last several decades, but by developing true skills and true courage in the face of what reality is really. Sending to you. So, we've got a lot to do. We've got to put down the iPods and get busy. There's no time for hand wringing, whining, or whinging. And as Yogi Berra once remarked, our whole future's ahead of us. So, that concludes my formal remarks, and I guess we'll get on with the questions. Thank you.
1: Our thanks to James Howard Kunstler. Um, He is the author of The Long Emergency for his comments here today. I'm Kerry Curtis. I'm the chair of the club's Environment and Natural Resources Forum, and I will be moderating today's audience question period. We have a ton of questions here, Jim, so uh, let's begin. The the first one has to do with the the politics in the U.S. and how uh, politics is likely to Evolve or devolve in response to uh, the pressures that will come with the uh, decline of oil and so forth.
0: Yeah, well, they're liable to uh, to become more delusional because that's that's generally what happens when a society is stressed. The higher the stress level gets, the poorer the thinking becomes collectively. That's something that we can expect, and we better be prepared for that. You know, we better be prepared for uh, the American public to demand a campaign to sustain the unsustainable, which, as I said in my formal remarks, will be a tremendous exercise in futility and a a continued uh, 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 misinvestment in the future, uh, a a misinvestment in things that have no future. You know, right now, uh, around the United States, there are many plans for building gigantic new interstate highways, this gigantic NAFTA highway that's going to begin to be constructed in Texas. You know, we can't afford to make these kinds of investments. They're very poor choices.
1: Um, s- several uh, members of the audience have questions about specific uh, forms of energy other than uh, other than oil, such as oil sands. You mentioned that, uh, the uh, Canadian uh, source of uh, petroleum. Uh, and uh, nuclear, a lot of proposals to build more nuclear uh, energy. And then also conservation you 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 don't hear uh, the big oil companies talking much about conservation Uh, you you, at the beginning of your talk you said you didn't think any of those measures or or collectively they could make up for the decline at petroleum sources
0: no they're not going to make up for it Uh, we're still going to be required to uh, make other arrangements for all these major things whether we like it or not Um, we'll probably use these things and they're they're probably gonna um, disappoint us however the, the quality of the public discussion about this stuff is just terrible, deplorable. You know uh, We may actually need to run nuclear energy. We don't know yet. Uh, uh, but we're not having any kind of public debate about it. There are a lot of valid arguments not to do nuclear. There are a lot of valid arguments to be afraid of nuclear and and to shy away from it. Uh, There's also the idea that we might not be able to keep the lights on in 20 years if we don't do it. So I'm not coming down necessarily either one way or the other on that, but what I am saying to the public is where's the the public debate about that because we better start it. Because if we are going to build reactors, it takes 10 years to get them built. You see what I'm saying? So, uh, 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 you know, uh, as far as conservation goes, well, do we want daddy or mommy to tell us to conserve? You know, the American public needs to demand this in one way or another. My guess is we probably won't demand that until we really feel the pain of price increases. That hasn't quite happened yet. given that you, you've talked about
1: uh, the price increases, and one, one member of the audience says, given man's incredible ability to adapt and innovate, um, would you revise
0: your predictions as written in your 2005 book? I do think that the human race is very resilient and, and uh, very ingenious, and there will be all kinds of things that we're going to do. But one of the things we're not going to do is find a uh, once in a uh, once in the history of a planet, endowment of petroleum again. And we have been conducting our lives based on that level of energy. We're probably going to be disappointed about the available energy we can innovate our way into. So, yeah, there's plenty of reason to have confidence in the human race, but we really have to uh, uh, find a new kind of orientation about what will be normal and what will really be possible. Part of the crux of this issue is we, we really have a short win- window of opportunity to get going on this in a coherent and, and uh, comprehensive way without um, inviting a great deal of political and social and economic turbulence and destruction. You know, A lot of the kind of social turbulence we face will be very destructive. It will destroy everything from uh, our ability to do any of these projects, to the sheer knowledge base that we possess. You know, there there are things that we know how to do now that we may forget in the future if we live in a very disorderly society in which institutions are badly damaged. So these are the kinds of things we need to be very worried about.
1: Uh, The people who, like myself, who came of age in the mid to slightly late 20th century uh, have this abiding faith in technology that... uh, it's going to bail us out, and so a lot of us that know better still. I think there's a habit of mind in there that
0: okay, what's the next technological thing that's going to bail us out? Well, as I said uh, near the end, um, th- this tends to grow out of a, a misunderstanding that the public has that energy and technology are the same thing, and so what we need to do is educate not only the uh, the broad public but even our leaders. You know, when I went to Google about. Uh, a year and a half ago, and I gave a lecture there. It was not about Google at the time. I went in there, and it was very interesting, because the place was sort of, uh, the the office down in uh, Mountain View was tricked out like a kindergarten, and the Google executives were wearing sideways baseball hats, and their butt crack was showing, and they were dressed like children. And this was the highest level of American technological enterprise. You know, and during the question, there were no questions during the question period, just, just comments. And the one comment was, dude, we've got technology. You know, which showed me that at the highest level of corporate technological computer enterprise in America, the executives don't know the difference between technology and energy. They think it's the same thing. They think that because they've been successful in pushing pixels around the screen with a mouse, that they can solve all the problems of mankind. And what I think you're seeing there is amazing, grandiose thinking. You know, from 27-year-old people who have become millionaires by some, you know, matter of luck of falling into a stock option, you know, because they happen to sign on with a certain company. And at 27, they become millionaires and they develop the grandiose idea that technology, as they understand it, can solve all the problems of the world. Well, this is really not very clear thinking. And so if that's the thinking that we're getting at the highest level of corporate enterprise, you know, w- what do you expect from the, the public? What do you expect from Joe Sixpack?
1: Earlier, you mentioned that uh, that politics is likely to become uh, even more delusional, and in that spirit, these two questions uh, come along. One is, uh, how much will the huge cost of the Iraq War accelerate this uh, long emergency? And given uh, U.S. desperation to secure energy resources, do you think that the U.S. will attack Iran? And if so,
0: uh, I'll take those backwards. You know, a lot of the people who correspond with me are very nervous about Iran. I, for one, am not really that exercised about it. I don't think it's immediately uh, on the menu. I would be surprised if, if, if it is, unless the Iranians do something really crazy. Um, our misinvestment in, in Iraq, I think, is going to be um, have tr- tremendous consequences. Uh, in the first place, we've already succeeded in exhausting and bankrupting our military to a significant degree. Uh, sooner or later, we're going to have to leave the Middle East. You know, our... our purpose in the Middle East really is pretty pretty simple. We went there, uh, apart from having, you know, apart from the trauma of 9-11 and having to, to, to strike back at some Arab uh, uh, entity, in, the, in this case, Saddam Hussein, because he was the best candidate for this. Um, apart from that, the whole purpose was to modify and influence the behavior of the major players in the Middle East, namely Iran and Saudi Arabia, um, sooner or later, whether it's a year or 36 months or five years, we're not going to be there anymore, and we're going to have to withdraw. We're going to lose our influence in that part of the world. We're going to have to withdraw into the Western Hemisphere. What then will we do to run Walt Disney World and Walmart when we lose our influence in these other parts of the world where they have oil? We're going to not be able to control events in that part of the world. Now, that's a strictly sort of pragmatic and strategic view of the situation, but I think that's where we're headed, and those are the kinds of questions we have to ask.
1: I'd like to remind our uh, listening audience on the radio that this is a program of the Commonwealth Club of California, and you are listening to James Howard Kunstler. His topic is the long emergency. What are your thoughts, Jim, about the the ecological footprint concept and the metric that goes along with it in terms of assisting policyholders and decision makers?
0: Well, I'm not all that entranced per se with statistical analysis as a way of understanding our world generally. There was a very influential article that came out in the New Yorker about two years ago um, I for, I'm sorry I forgot the name of the author, but uh, the article said, essentially, Manhattan was the greatest model for green, sustainable living because you could cram so many people into the footprint of a building, that is, the square feet. You, you know, In, a hundred, in a, a thousand, or 10,000 square feet of a building space, you could cram 50 stories of people living in apartments. Okay? So that was one statistical way of understanding sustainability. But in my view, it was completely wrong-headed. Because we're not even taking into account the fact that skyscrapers may not be sustainable building types, you know. If we don't have a, a cheap and reliable natural gas supply, methane gas, we're not going to be able to heat those skyscrapers in New York City. So, you know, the statistical view of things uh, can lead us in, down pathways that are very um, uh, misleading and eventually have terrible consequences. Uh,
1: you mentioned that oil is running out in uh, in Mexico. And uh, there's also a lot of discontent about NAFTA in, in general, um, and then the the immigration issue is a very big one. So, do these things uh, come together? Is there uh, is there is there a reason for us to uh, reconsider NAFTA? Uh, what should we be doing about Well, First of all, the, you know,
0: I, I think the Canadians would be very unhappy with the fact that they are compelled to sell us all the natural gas that we want to buy, since their natural gas' supply is just as constrained as ours is and is very close to getting into trouble. Uh, the problem with Mexico, of course, is that as their me- as their oil industry depletes, declines and, and deprives them of income you know they 're probably going to be looking at getting into a lot more political turmoil. And uh, the last time uh, Mexico was in turmoil was that long period of revolution between, you know, about 1915 and 1940. And at that time, I think more than a tenth of the Mexican population left So if Mexico goes through a new round of severe political instability or revolution, I think you'll see accelerated out-migration from there. And, of course, that will aggravate the problems we already have with illegal immigration. Um, Has there ever
1: been another resource collapse like you see coming in in history that we could learn from?
0: Well, uh, Pete, some commentators like to point out for their own rhetorical purposes that – You know, um, when the wood supply in England ran out, they—you know—their society didn't collapse. They found coal and started using it more. Uh, That uh, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, we started moving from uh, coal to oil, and that there's been this sort of natural evolution of energy sources. But uh, you know, from time to time in history, there are also major discontinuities, and I think the end of the oil age will really represent the end. Uh, not just of oil, but of a 200-year fossil fuel fiesta, including coal and including oil and including uh, uh, gas and the whole sequence. And in fact, that will be a major discontinuity, and it will put the human race in a place where we're going to have to really use our, our imaginations and our ingenuity and our resilience and our intelligence in all of its dimensions to uh, rescue this project that we call Civilization. Here's a question that may be slightly
1: tongue in cheek, but then again, it may not. If you were 30 years old with a bachelor's in, from the University of California in mechanical engineering and an MBA from MIT in business and manufacturing, <laughs> I wonder if that's autobiographical,
0: where would you hope to live and work? Well, um, there are many parts of uh, the US, if we're talking about America, you know, that are worth living in. Um, I don't think that it particularly matters what your degrees or certifications uh, or credentials are. Um, we're, we're all going to have to face issues about where we can live and, and where we will live and the choices we make. Uh, all I'd say is this. You know, there are some places in America, some parts of the country, that are self-evidently going to be in trouble. You know, I would not choose to move to Las Vegas. It is not the city of the future, despite all the propaganda that we hear about it. I'm generally um, less sanguine about the Sun Belt in, as a whole uh, because I think that uh, there, there are problems in the wet Sun Belt. We're going to find, that's you know, the area east of Texas. We're going to discover why that was an agricultural backwater until universal air conditioning came along. Um, we're going to have uh, uh, similar uh, problems in the Southwest with a lot of ethnic uh, friction on top of that that is going to be an impediment to us sorting things out. You know, I I'm, I'm, happen to be a champion of the upper Midwest and the Northeast, but, you know, that, you could call that a, a bias, probably fairly. You know, there, I, I would urge you to adopt your own view of that, but to, to do it as realistically as possible, you know, not, not because you uh, like plastic palm trees and flamingos and things.
1: You mentioned the decline of the U.S. passenger rail system uh, as uh, regrettable and the desirability of building that back up again. Uh, what about the future of air travel? Uh, everyone Very good everywhere.
0: question. Uh, I fly now and again, and, and uh, I've noticed over the last uh, five years an incredible process of decrepitation out there in the, the airlines. It seems, you know, one particular airline that will go unnamed that I flew in the last 10, ten days twice seems to have three employees in the whole airline. You know, <laughs> they fly the planes, they clean the planes, they give you your boarding pass, you know, they check your luggage in. And uh, you know, as a result, it's like the most incredibly mismanaged company. You know, nobody gets to where they're trying to get on time with this particular airline. Uh, I think the short answer is um, the, the airlines are like the canaries in the coal mine. Uh, you know, the great airline fleets that are owned both by the private companies and the national airlines, we're not going to change the hardware. We're stuck pretty much with the hardware that we've got, the Boeings and the Airbuses and the Embraers that run on liquid hydrocarbon fuels. We're not going to run them on technology, They're either going to run on liquid hydrocarbons or they're not going to run. And and also, you know, the economic equation that goes into that has to work right. The liquid hydrocarbon fuels have to be cheap enough because it's it's about 40% of their operating costs. So if uh, aviation fuel goes up to $5 a gallon or $6 a gallon, what happens then? My guess is that commercial aviation is not going to be with us that far into the future except as one of those elite activities and that uh, that even that may not continue after 50 years or so. That's one of the reasons I think it's desperately important that we get our passenger railroad system up and running again between the cities. You can't get from Columbus, Ohio, the capital of Ohio, to Cleveland or Chicago on a train. That's crazy. You can't get from Atlanta to Nashville. Uh, we've got to do better. Uh, one of the
1: Problems that 's been more and more pronounced in recent decades is the uh, maldistribution of wealth. The haves have an increasingly high percentage of income, and the have-nots have nots have dec- an increasingly small proportion of that. Do you see this long emergency that you 're talking about uh, exacerbating that, uh, that phenomenon?
0: well I 've described this process as uh, you know the long emergency producing a large group new group of losers, economic losers, and that 's sort of exactly what 's happening. Um, historically, what happens uh, in cases that are like this is uh, you get people, especially in, in, given our problem with food production and having to make a shift now between uh, industrial food production of cheeseburgers and cheese doodles and going back to local, small scale, smaller scale farming that will require more human attention. There's a whole prospect for a group who retains wealth and land and a group of dispossessed, uh, underemployed, um, starving perhaps uh, uh, new class of people who are going to be very desperate. And those are the kinds of conditions historically that produce revolutions. They produce seizures of property. They produce what is called the circulation of elites in which one group of elites is thrown out and another group rises and takes their place. These are, you know, historical processes, and we've seen them happen before. And so you can, you can probably state categorically that it's very dangerous when you see this trend building and building. And we should be concerned about it. Here's a question from an
1: audience member who says, My favorite local farmer is struggling to stay afloat. What can he do to keep his small uh, local organic farm in the black? until our policies and consumer demand catch up?
0: Well, I wish I could pretend that I was an agronomist, and I'm not. And I, I can't give your friend really useful advice, um, although there are people who are doing farming that we, we see doing it in a different way that, that they can do profitably. Uh, we went about uh, three weeks ago to the, a very large convention of the Pennsylvania Association of Sustainable Farmers. Uh, and it was a very impressive group of people for a number of reasons. One was a lot of them were really young. They were young people who had gotten into farming. They were really healthy-looking. You know, they didn't look like the, these lumbering brutes that I see in the, the airplane, air, airport concourses, you know. They were healthy, they were young, and they were really intelligent, and they were very, very interested in what they were doing. And that, to me, was a tremendously important sign that there's a cohort of people out there who are interested in this important issue and doing something about it, and doing it happily and doing it energetically. And and, uh, you know, it was a real uh, it, it was a real shot in the arm for me to see that. So I I can't give you you specific advice. There are organizations all over the U.S. for sustainable agriculture, and they're full of energetic, healthy, smart young people.
1: Uh, A few weeks ago, we had Amory Lovins here to talk about uh, energy, I guess, in general, and specifically he's interested in the uh, the efficiency and the economics of uh, cars. And he has a very upbeat message that cars can be remade with new materials and so forth, Uh, But I gather, I infer from your remarks that you would see a limit as to how how much potential there is in that.
0: uh... Well, Amory and I have had a disagreement about this over the years. (laughs) I think his project is crazy. (laughs) Because, fundamentally, it it has one major consequence. It promotes the idea that we can continue to be a car-dependent society. What could be crazier? You know, so... The idea that this is some kind of an ecologically sound program is, is to my mind, um, uh, uh, not uh, consistent with reality. And that's all I'll say about it.
1: Unfortunately, we have reached the point in our program where there's time for just one last question. And that is, um, your, your prophecy seems to be kind of doomsday. And so the question is, uh, in terms of doing something about it, what, what are the social, political, and structural changes that we as citizens need to uh,
0: make uh, to have a sustainable future? Well, I thought I, I, thought I spent about 40 minutes uh, stating what they were. Uh, no, this isn't a doomsday message. In fact, I'm generally a very cheerful person. Believe it or not, personally, I'm very cheerful. Um, and as I said, you know, um, it is possible to greet these things with a realistically, uh, with a, a realistic and, uh, uh, sense of courage and determination, to uh, uh, accomplish what we have to do. But uh, we're having, a, we're getting bad leadership at every level, politically, uh, from business, in um, education, and especially in the media, and the quality of the public discussion we're having about these problems is not good and it's not helping. We need to have a better public discussion. I don't think it's the end of the world. What I'm describing are a set of discontinuities that are going to make organized, civilized life more difficult than we have experienced in the very, very fortunate period that most of us have lived in. But it's not going to be the end of the world. It's going to be a big challenge. Uh, And I hope that we, um, I hope we meet it bravely. Our thanks to James Howard Kunstler, author of
1: The Long Emergency, for his comments here today. We also thank our audiences here, as well as our radio audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating its 104th year of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.
0: Where's my mug? Mug? Where's my mug? I don't know.
1: I'd like to remind the audience here that uh, r- r- immediately at this point, we're going to have a, a PowerPoint presentation uh, I- starting in about two minutes uh, put on by this city of Wedwood City to talk about how they're implementing these principles uh, in their town.
0: Um, you're, you're an official of this org, right? I, I don't know if you want a, comp- a copy of these remarks, but here's a copy for your archives. Oh, great, yeah. In fact, this is very helpful because we do... Uh...
1: This one may get wound up uh, published in the magazine.
0: Okay. So so it will require some editing because I noticed when I was going over the script, type over stuff. So. Okay. But, yeah. I'm sorry for my uh, awkward introduction. Oh, it was fine.
1: But um, oh, sure. you're your watching really good. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi. Oh, hey, Steve. Nice to
0: see you again. Thanks for coming, dude. Um, we're leaving...